Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right, well, I believe we are back in Genesis at chapter 35. It's going to feel a little bit odd because Jacob already had his name changed, right? But he's about to get it changed again. I'm sure that'll raise some questions. We'll talk about that and some other things. But why don't we pray and then let's read the chapter. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for the cooler weather we've had. We thank you for the warmth of the sun this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to recognize the blessings of your watchful care and your provision in things as as mundane and taken for granted as the shining of the sun. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in our worship this morning as we gather around your word and then around the Lord's table. We pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds as we read and discuss your word this morning. We pray that we might see more clearly in it something of ourselves, something of you, something of your way with us in Christ. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. All right. Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died when she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. 
And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Lots to talk about. A whole lot going on in the chapter. In verse 4, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings in their ears. Does that indicate that the rings in the ears is uh, like an idol or something? That's a good question. What's the connection between the rings in their ears and, and the idols that they seem to have? Because they, they do, right? They remove them together and leave them behind. So that would seem to indicate some sort of relationship between them. We see examples in other places in Genesis where, and other parts in the Old Testament, where the jewelry is associated with idols. Uh, One place we see that is with the Ishmaelites. They have some kind of crescent pendants or something that their candles, or sorry, their camels are are wearing. I just can't talk this morning. I'm sorry. And the, those pendants that the camels are wearing seem to be associated with the worship of moon gods. And so you're right. I think the, the correlation here in verse 4 would indicate that there's something about either the jewelry itself or perhaps the particular form of these rings in their ears that's associated with the idols. But we don't have much more information to go on than that. Just guesses. It's a different situation than we have in Exodus 32, right? In Exodus 32, where uh, the sons of Israel come and they want Aaron to make them gods. Then they take off all their jewelry and give it to Aaron because Aaron fashions it into an image. But that's not what we have here because they're, they're leaving them behind, right? They're not taking them and, and making them into something precious. That's a good question, too. Yeah, because they could have broken them up, right? We think of Exodus 34, well, 32, 33, 34, right? That whole complex. When Moses comes back down the mountain and confronts them, right? He ends up grinding the idol down into powder and mixing it with the water and making the people drink it. So there are all sorts of questions surrounding the fact that they have idols among them. But yeah, what's, what are the rings? They seem to be associated somehow. Why don't they destroy them, right? Why do they just bury them? Because presumably they could come back and dig them up later. 
Uh, maybe it's a symbolic putting them in the grave, putting them to death. But it's, it's not elaborated on. So we're just kind of left guessing. Is there a significance of the terebinth tree wives? So the terebinth or the oak, there's some sort of religious significance with these trees. Often Abraham will pitch his tent at a particular terebinth tree, uh, or they will worship the Lord at this particular tree. And later, when the Lord sets his name in a particular place with the tabernacle or with the temple in Jerusalem, the people will still follow this pattern of going and finding a tree on a high place and either worshiping the Lord wrongly in a place other than he has chosen or worshiping false gods under those trees on the high places. So there does seem to be some religious significance to the tree as well. Right, there are several things going on with these idols, right? And one is why do they have foreign gods? You remember that Abraham has covenanted with the Lord. And then that's passed through Isaac to Jacob. Jacob's already met with the Lord on his way out of the land at Bethel. And then met with the Lord again on his way back into the land. And now the Lord is telling him to move to Bethel where he had met him many years before. So presumably throughout this time, Jacob has worshiped the Lord only. But that doesn't seem to be true of his household. I remember he's gone back into Mesopotamia to Ken to find a wife there. And, and we already know that Rachel brought, right? She stole her father's household gods and brought them with her. So there's all sorts of questions about what, what about the household, right? And that's dealt with here as Jacob then involves his whole household in sort of renewing a covenant with the Lord and requiring of the whole household that they leave these gods behind and worship the Lord only. Apparently he had not done that before, which raises a number of questions. I mean, he did speak to them of the Lord when they were leaving Mesopotamia. So the Lord who promised to be with me has met me and told me to rise up and go. And so we're leaving. But apparently that didn't necessarily entail them leaving behind the foreign gods at that point. There is in the midst of this presentation, a subtle critique of those foreign gods. And it has to do with an idol or an image, something that's made much more explicit later with the Ten Commandments is that the Lord has no image. We are God's image. Think about Genesis 1. There is no idol or image that we would set up for worshiping the Lord. And that distinguishes him from all of the other competing deities. It's something that the people of Israel struggle with. Frequently, they're trying to provide an image for the Lord so that they can worship him in the way that surrounding peoples worship the Lord. But the thing about an image is it can be manipulated and it has to be moved. And that's part of what's going on at different points when, as here, these gods are so powerful that we can bury them in the ground and forget about them. 
And if they're going to move with us, right? If these gods are going to come with us from Mesopotamia, well, we got to stuff them in a saddlebag and carry them with us. And this is something that we see throughout the Old Testament. We see in Isaiah that he makes fun of foreign gods that, you know, they're deaf and dumb and blind. They can't see anything. They can't say anything. They can't do anything. Makes fun of the people who make these images. Some people think this is about Christmas trees. It's not about Christmas trees. But the description of somebody who goes out into the woods and cuts down a tree and half of it they cut up into firewood and burn in the fire and the other half they carve into an idol and then bow down before it. It's like, can't you see how ridiculous this is? You've fashioned a God out of this tree that you cut down with your own hands. This God who can't do anything for you. Uh, we've seen in First Samuel at a couple of points when, when the Philistine gods have triumphed over the gods of Israel, they don't know until the Philistines come back from the battle and give the news to them. They're unaware. And so there's an element of that critique here subtly in that these gods have had to be carried to where they are and they can be put away and as, as idols, whether they're made of stone or some precious metal or wood, they're powerless to do anything about it. If they're living gods, they've just been buried alive and they're stuck in a hole in the ground. So contrast that with the Lord who has no image, who can be manipulated or moved like that, either for the people's favor or for their ill. Uh, and, and the people do wrestle with that idea. They make golden calves, right? Which are associated with Baal. And maybe they're trying to represent the Lord as having the strength of an ox, or maybe they're trying to represent the Lord as riding on a bull, but they ought not do that. The Lord's told them not to. Uh, they try and treat the ark itself as something like an idol, right? We saw that in first Samuel as well where they carry it into battle because that will guarantee their victory instead of seeking the Lord's face. Anyway, that, that critique of idols and false gods is present here and elsewhere. Good. What else do we see? Well, whereas um, Abraham, Abram, becoming named, renamed Abraham, Sarai, renamed Sarah, they actually assume those names. Jacob is still being called Jacob. And then when we get to the New Testament, the Lord is referred to as the God of Jacob. Jacob's renamed without seeming to, doesn't seem to stick in the way people talk to him and refer to him. Yeah. So Abram is renamed once in Genesis 17, and his name change sticks. So that if we go back and talk about earlier chapters, we still call him Abraham, which is, is not really his name until chapter 17. But Jacob gets his name changed twice, right? It was changed here, but it was already changed back in, I want to say chapter 30, yeah, 32. So his name has already been changed, but it didn't stick. He continues to be called Jacob. And then here, he's renamed again with the same name, Israel. And it sticks for part of the chapter, but it doesn't stick the way it does with Abraham. Refer to his descendants as the children of Israel. Yes. Yeah, and we'll find both yeah. throughout. We'll talk about the sons of Jacob. We'll talk about the sons of Israel. 
And we see but both used today, in... Today, Israel is yeah. what we call it. We don't call it the, the sons of Jacob. We call it Israel. Well, this is something that happens... You're right, we do. We call, call them Israel now, although technically they're Judah. Right? They're the remnants of the southern kingdom. Because eventually, over time, Israel is used of the ten tribes in the north and not of the two tribes in the south. Right? The north is called Israel and the south is called by the dominant tribe, Judah. How do we see continuity with Abraham in this chapter? Uh, we have, we've asserted and pointed out at a few places along the way, but really at this point, we haven't developed it enough to be more than just an assertion that the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 drives the narrative of Genesis. If that's true, we should see elements of it working their way into this chapter and continuing beyond. So if you think about the promise to Abraham, Right, which revolved around a people, a place, and then God's presence with them. Do we see that here in this chapter? Verse 11 is reiterating some of the promise given to Abraham, but applying it to Jacob, or Israel. And also in verse 12, about the land. Yeah, so verses 11 and 12, which elements of that promise to Abraham do we see there? Mention land. Land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. Yeah. And to your descendants. Yeah. So we get a people, we get a place. Roughly, right, verse 11 is people. Verse 12 is place. But it brings in the people again in relation to the place. Because why does the place matter if we don't have a people who will inherit it? What about the idea of God's presence with him? Well, his name means God strives or strives with God. Yeah. So we see the presence of God with him in a couple of ways. We see it in the renaming, which is in some ways just a reference to the name he's already been given. We also see it in relation to Bethel, because Bethel is where the Lord met him on his way out and promised to be with him. So his presence alive with his household now and then being pointed back to Bethel as the place where he met with the Lord is a reminder to him that the Lord has been present with him, that he has blessed those who bless him, that those who have dishonored him, he has cursed, right? He has done for Jacob what he promised in those words to Abraham in chapter 12. So we see that line of promise continuing, right? We saw it clearly with Abraham. Things were a little sketchy with Isaac, but it did continue, right? And then we're seeing it here with Jacob, and we've got 14 chapters to go in Genesis. So we can see how much more that develops. 15, 15 chapters to go. One of the things to watch that I'll comment on just, just briefly has to do with God's name. In Genesis, if you think about Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, the Lord reveals himself to Moses with the name Yahweh. It's represented in our English translations with Lord in all, all caps. And he says in that conversation with Moses that he was not known by that name to his fathers. But we see that name 
in Genesis. Why would that be? Because he was known by that name to the human writer? Yes. The people who are hearing Genesis, to whom Moses is telling the story, they know the Lord by that name. And so we find that name in Genesis for the sake of the clarity for the audience of Genesis. Does that make sense? But often we'll find in the mouths of the people in Genesis other names by which they knew the Lord. And one is here, for instance, in verse 7, right? When this all transpires, when the Lord meets him and tells him to go to Bethel, right? He gives him the name El Bethel, God of the house of God, right? Bethel means house of God, which is what he named the place where he met him. And now he calls him the God of God's house, right? The God of the place where I met God. We'll see lots of different names for the Lord pop up in Genesis, right? God Almighty is also here in this chapter. We see that in verse 11. That's in God's mouth as he speaks. So watch for that. Usually the names given to the Lord in Genesis relate to what's going on. The God who sees, the God who provides, God of the house of God. They tell us something about his character. What else do we have going on? God's protection for them as they travel is starting with verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities. Yes, we should add that up here under God's presence or protection going with them, that terror that falls on the cities around in verse 5. Thank you. In verse 15, it says he called place Bethel, but was it already Bethel? Yes, he had already called it Bethel. So it's like we get a double naming of the place. It's like we got a double naming of Jacob. That's a good observation too. It says Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. Sometimes folks will read a chapter like this where something is named that's already been named. And say, aha, there's something nefarious afoot. We've lost track of why it has this name. And so maybe we have two competing explanations. We can't make up our mind. Well, yeah, maybe. But oftentimes when something is renamed, the old name sticks around for a while. And so we get a reminder later of of why it's renamed that. I notice this a lot when I move to a new place and people will refer to something by the name it used to have. I like the Valero downtown Jackson, right? I don't know how long it's not been a Valero, but it's not a Valero now. I think it is still a Valero on Google maps. So I was able to figure out what people were talking about, but if I'm driving past it, it doesn't say Valero. And so, you know, people will tell me, well, the Valero is the best fried chicken in town. Like what Valero? (laughs) And so sometimes, right, something will happen, and so the name will be reasserted again later. Or there'll be a reminder because the old name for something has has stuck around. And I think that's a better explanation for what we have here. As Jacob is renamed once again Israel, it's a reminder to him, because he hasn't really latched on to his new name, 
that the Lord is striving, the Lord is wrestling. And as, as much as that may mean that Jacob is wrestling with God, it also means that God is wrestling on Jacob's behalf and protecting him and guarding him against the nation. Bethel has this other name, Luz, because there are other people who live there. And maybe we need that to help us with the geographic references. We're reading the map and you know, we've got a map that was printed earlier. But we also need to be reminded of its new name to remind Jacob. And then Jacob can remind his family that this is where I met with God. And he promised to protect me. And now we're back in the land. So we circle back and we put up a new monument that records what the Lord has done. Right? He's not just putting up a rock because it looks pretty. It probably would have inscribed on it a record of what the Lord had promised, and then the Lord's fulfillment of that promise as he bears witness to the fact that the Lord has brought him back. Isn't it also indicative of, or comforting, that Moses was writing down things, you know, that happened rather than ironing over some things to smooth it out? And, you know, this is messy, so I'm just not going to mention this. Yeah, there's a stubborn unwillingness to kind of smooth over the wrinkles of the narrative and its recounting, but also by preserving those wrinkles, it preserves for his audience a reminder that across a generation, God has looked after his people. And across three generations now, from Abraham to Jacob, with opportunity for things to have gone awry all over the place, The Lord is watching over them and has been, which gives us hope as we're sitting in Egypt or on our way out into the wilderness. Is the Lord going to look after us? Or as we keep saying, sometimes to each other and sometimes directly to Moses, that the Lord's led us out here to die. Because somewhere along the way, even though he divided the Red Sea so we could walk over on dry land, he's lost the ability to feed us add some perspective to their complaints, as well as reminds them that the Lord is trustworthy. Sometimes we need those kinds of reminders. Sometimes we get them from scripture. Sometimes we need to sit down with each other or with our family and hear stories of the Lord's faithfulness across generations, things that our family has been through, things that our grandparents have been through, things that The Lord has walked people through and demonstrated his faithfulness to strengthen and encourage us in the midst of something we're presently going through or something we're about to go through or something we've been through that we're we're wrestling with how to understand. There's a real sense in which Genesis is preparing Israel for the journey out of Egypt into the promised land by informing them who they are as children of Abraham and who God is as the one who's made these promises to Abraham and has been at work to see them through. What else? What about the end of the chapter? The ASV breaks it up into two sections, and most of our conversation's been about verses 1 through 15. What about 16 to the end? There's a couple surprises there. Rachel dies, give birth, but Jacob changes the name that she wants to Benjamin. 
yeah, what's up with the name changes? And there are, there are a couple of things going on with those names. Rachel knows she's dying. I mean, I know to them it was important to bear sons. And so the midwife thought it would encourage her or help her. Like, don't be afraid. You're giving birth to a son. I have a hard time wrapping my head around how that would be of any comfort to her as she's dying. But the name that she gives him means son of my sorrow. Because she knows that she's dying. And hopefully he will live. But she knows she's not going to. And that's a name that, that recognizes that sadness and that mourning. That'd be a terrible name to be saddled with. And my mom gave me a name on her, Beth, on her deathbed as I was dying. It's going to remind everyone that my birth killed my mom. But Jacob, or Israel, gives him a different name, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of my strength. Right? He gives him a name instead that points in hope to what he hopes that this son will become and will represent. That was Rachel in right hand. Rachel was in strength. That's a good question, too, uh, because Rachel is his favorite wife. Right? Rachel is the one he hoped would build up his house. And this is now, this is also his last son. It could be read both ways <laughs> as reflecting on Rachel and her role in the house and also looking forward to what hopefully Benjamin will represent. It does represent possibly something of an upset. Everything has been laid out for things to go terribly uh, because the firstborn son is supposed to have the birthright. But the firstborn son is with his second favorite or least favorite wife. Joseph comes along much later. And then Benjamin lasts. And those are the only two sons of Rachel, the favorite wife. Later in the law, it will be encoded and spelled out very clearly. Look, if you're in a household where you have more than one wife and your favorite wife bears a son, but your not favorite wife or your firstborn, you don't get to make the son of your favorite wife have the role and privilege of the firstborn. And that's spelled out because that was a problem. And we'll see. It's going to be a problem in Jacob's household. But it's also a lot more complex. Because who's the firstborn? Reuben. Reuben. Yeah. And what it, there's this fleeting note about Reuben as we're learning so much and moving on to something else. What does Reuben do? Sleeps with the concubines, but in the tale of Joseph, he looked promising because he tried to spare Joseph. Yeah. Yeah, he's a complicated guy. But here, you know, whatever, you know, this may be inserting the note here because this is a convenient place to mention it. And maybe it happens later. Or maybe it happens in the midst of this chronologically. Like Reuben takes one of his father's wives. Uh, that's not good. That's not a go therefore and do likewise. And then who's next in line? Simeon and Levi. But what they do? Butcher a lot of people. Yeah, they, they butchered the people of Shechem. They went out in anger, perhaps on the assumption that their father wasn't going to do anything, and butchered an entire city and put the entire family in danger with their exercise of anger. This is something that Jacob's going to reflect on at the end of the book, and he's going to give prominence to Judah over against the others. We have lots of questions as we get there, uh, as we approach that, as to why Judah, right? We know why not Reuben, 
we know why not Simeon and Levi, but is it Judah just because he's next in line? Or does Judah actually demonstrate something in his character that shows leadership among the sons? What else is happening? As we, right, if you think about previous chapters in Genesis, we arrive here, we get a genealogy, and everybody groaned. But we have these names. Typically, up to this point, what have we found in Genesis? As we compare the line of Abraham with the line of, of others. Like Terah's descendants, Ishmael's descendants, Esau's descendants. How's that comparison usually gone? What was Abraham promised? An incredibly numerous people, right? More than the stars in the sky. More than the sand on the seashore. What does he have? He got Ishmael and Isaac, and he gets told Ishmael is not a son of the promise. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And Esau goes and dwells over against his brothers. Now we have Jacob, and Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. We are beginning to see something that's been delayed for three generations as the family finally begins to be fruitful and multiply. It's still a far cry from a great nation. And we'll end the book with 70 people going down into Egypt, which is a lot more than 12, but it's still a pretty far cry. From anything, I think that anybody would apply a label like a great nation, right? And and among 70 people, you wouldn't really talk about kings of peoples coming from you. But we do finally have, especially relative to the previous generation, an explosion of descendants. We'll watch and we'll see how that carries us forward. And then how does the chapter end? Well, we mentioned it before. It's just about how short, small the piece of the Bible that Isaac has mentioned in here, you get two verses of his death. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. For all that time, right? Most of the time spent on Isaac has been time spent on Abraham or time spent on Jacob, in which Isaac happens to feature. There's very little time actually spent on Isaac, and now he dies. So this is the conclusion of Isaac's life. We really don't get much about him. He breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. That remark does color how we might interpret some of the earlier chapters, because old and full of days is a recognition of God's blessing, that he's been granted a long life, clearly much longer than his sons expected. I think Jacob fully expected that his dad was going to die while he was away in Mesopotamia. I mean, they thought he was on his deathbed when he went in to steal the blessing. And that was a long time ago at this point. What happens when Isaac dies? Esau and Jacob both together buried him. Jacob and Esau come together for the last time, but to bury their father. And there's no note around it of hostility or enmity. There's not much of a note of hope either. They don't seem to stay together. But that leaves this question mark over what will be the relationship between these two brothers and what will be the relationship between the nations that descend from them. If you want to know how that works out, you can read Obadiah. It doesn't work out well. But at this point, it's a question mark. That uh, Abraham bought 
Or would you assume that, I guess? I would assume so. It's not specified, but, but I would assume so. And I would assume that's what's indicated by he was gathered to his people. Did his bones came to rest in the family tomb? Was it 150 years old when he died? 175, I think. Was it 100? Okay. Well, I would say 180 kind of rang a bell. I knew, you know, somewhere in that very long life. Yeah, 100, Abram was 175. That's 25 verse 7. So, and Isaac was 180. So we've seen God's faithfulness. We've seen the continuity of the promise across generations. We've seen things develop that, that have us kind of looking ahead to see what's going to happen over the family, over succeeding generations, and their relationship with close kin like Esau, overcoming generations as well. But remember, as the Israelites needed to remember as they heard this, that this is for them a record of God's faithfulness to them in the past that then shapes their understanding of God's relationship with them and with their children. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its record for us of your faithfulness to your people, to our house, to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We pray that you would be a God to us and to our house. We pray as parents, as grandparents, as heads of household, that we would faithfully point our family to you and to your goodness. We pray that you would show yourself to our children, our grandchildren, our descendants as he who has been God to us and will be God to them as well. We thank you for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would receive the honor and the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.